Welcome back to the Rights and Liberties Podcast, where we are discussing the Federalist Papers. Today we'll talk about Federalist 73. We typically begin these podcasts with three big ideas concerning the essay under review. Here are three big ideas from Federalist 73. Big Idea 1. In Federalist 73, Hamilton pointed to the fixed character of the salary of the president as an element of the strength of the executive branch. Big Idea 2. Hamilton also pointed in Federalist 73 to the power of the veto as an element of the president's authority that gave the executive branch strength in the face of potential legislative supremacy. Big Idea 3. Hamilton praised stability in legislation rather than rapid change in legislation in Federalist 73. Now, in Federalist 70, Hamilton had pointed to several elements of what he described as, quote, energy in the executive, end quote. And in the following essays of the Federalists, describe these elements in greater detail. In Federalist 73, he took up two of these elements, the fixed character of the president's salary and the power of the veto. First, a bit about presidential salaries in Big Idea 1. This is an important idea, but not a very complex one to explain. Hamilton's focus on energy in the executive branch was often explained with reference to the potential of the legislature to dominate the other branches. One element of legislative power was, and is, the power of the purse, then Hamilton saw good reason to protect the president from just that power, quoting Hamilton on this, quote, The legislature, with the discretionary power over the salary and emoluments of the chief magistrate, could render him as obsequious to their will as they might think proper to make him. They might, in most cases, either reduce him by famine or tempt him by largesses to surrender at discretion his judgment to their inclinations, end quote. Of course, the Constitution addressed this, explicitly stating that the Congress could not change the salary of the president during the president's term, and also stating that the states would not be allowed to grant material rewards, emoluments, to the president. Quoting Hamilton here, quote, The legislature, on the appointment of a president, is once for all to declare what shall be the compensation for his services during the time for which he shall have been elected. This done, they will have no power to alter it, either by increase or diminution, till a new period of service by a new election commences. They can neither weaken his fortitude by operating on his necessities, nor corrupt his integrity by appealing to his avarice. Neither the union nor any of its members will be at liberty to give, nor will he be at liberty to receive, any other emolument than that which may have been determined by the first act. End quote. Ensuring that the president's salary could neither be augmented to reward particular decisions nor reduced to punish them was on Hamilton's account an important element of the independence of the presidency from other powers in government. So too on his account was the veto, that is big idea too. Hamilton's analysis of the veto saw it justified on two distinct grounds. The first, familiar to us as a theme in several essays of the Federalist Papers, was rooted in Hamilton's concern that the legislature would tend to dominate the other branches of government, unless prevented from doing so. After describing briefly this concern in terms of principles, Hamilton described how the veto, negating laws passed by the legislature, would offer the executive the ability to defend itself, quoting Hamilton on this, quote, 
From these clear and indubitable principles results the propriety of a negative, either absolute or qualified, in the executive upon the acts of the legislative branches. Without the one or the other, the former would be absolutely unable to defend himself from the depredations of the latter. He might gradually be stripped of his authorities by successive resolutions or annihilated by a single vote. And in the one mode or the other, the legislative and executive powers might speedily come to be blended in the same hands." End quote. Beyond this justification of the veto, pointing to the struggle for superiority among branches of government, and the need to prevent the legislature from dominating the executive, Hamilton asserted that the veto would lead to better lawmaking. Hamilton took care to point out that this claim, that the veto would lead to better lawmaking, was not grounded in any claim about the excellence of the person serving as president, but was rather grounded in a claim that the legislature will sometimes make mistakes, quoting Hamilton on this, quote, the primary inducement to conferring the power in question upon the executive is to enable him to defend himself. The secondary one is to increase the chances in favor of the community against the passing of bad laws through haste, inadvertence, or design. The oftener the measure is brought under examination, the greater the diversity in the situations of those who are to examine it, the less must be the danger of those errors which flow from want of due deliberation or of those missteps which proceed from the contagion of some common passion or interest." End quote. Hamilton turned to a noteworthy theoretical question. If both the executive and the legislature can make mistakes, then is it not likely that the veto would prevent good laws from being enacted as well as bad ones? Hamilton's answer to such a question leads us to Big Idea 3, Hamilton's praise of stability in law. Quoting Hamilton on this point, quote, It may perhaps be said that the power of preventing bad laws includes that of preventing good ones, and may be used to the one purpose as well as to the other. But this objection will have little weight with those who can properly estimate the mischiefs of that inconstancy and mutability in the laws which form the greatest blemish in the character and genius of our governments. They will consider every institution calculated to restrain the excess of lawmaking and to keep things in the same state in which they happen to be at any given period as much more likely to do good than harm, because it is favorable to greater stability in the system of legislation. The injury which may possibly be done by defeating a few good laws will be amply compensated by the advantage of preventing a number of bad ones." End quote. One puzzle about Hamilton's argument is that it might appear to point in two directions that differ a bit. Hamilton's praise of stability in legislation seems to accord with support of the veto. The veto means the law changes less frequently, and just as we saw, Hamilton was willing to tolerate the occasional veto of good laws to prevent the passage of bad laws. But it is also the case that another of his defenses of the veto was on grounds that it would not often be used. Hamilton offered a comparison of the American executive to the British crown, whose veto had not been used, according to Hamilton, for, quote, a very considerable period, end quote, as evidence for the president's likely reluctance to use the veto. Quoting Hamilton on this, quote, if a magistrate so powerful and so well fortified as a British monarch would have scruples about the exercise of the power under consideration, how much greater caution may be reasonably expected in a president of the United States? clothed for the short period of four years with the executive authority of a government wholly and purely Republican." End quote. So just note, there is a claim that the veto is good, even if it blocks a few good laws, 
because of the bad laws it would also block, but also a claim that the veto might be rarely enough used as to occasion comment on the length of time between vetoes. These are not explicitly contradictory claims, but they seem, as I see it, to pull in differing directions. I think it is noteworthy that Hamilton in Federalist 73 stressed the qualified character of the veto in the Constitution, qualified in the sense that the Congress could override it with a majority of two-thirds or greater in each house, quoting Hamilton on this, quote, instead of an absolute negative, it is proposed to give the executive the qualified negative already described. This is a power which would be much more readily exercised than the other. A man who might be afraid to defeat a law by his single veto might not scruple to return it for reconsideration, subject to being finally rejected only in the event of more than one-third of each house concurring in the sufficiency of his objections." End quote. We often close these podcasts by talking about politics today and tomorrow. It seems to me that there is at times a kind of mechanical language in the analysis by the authors of the Federalist Papers, and perhaps others during the same period separating and balancing elements in government to keep a system operating with stability. But another line of Hamilton's argument seems to cast the veto in terms of a wider negotiation between the branches, the negative redescribed as a return for reconsideration, as we saw a moment ago. Let's look at a bit more from Hamilton on this point. I'll read a passage and then talk about it afterward, quoting Hamilton here, quote, a direct and categorical negative has something in the appearance of it more harsh and more apt to irritate than the mere suggestion of argumentative objections to be approved or disapproved by those to whom they are addressed. In proportion, as it would be less apt to offend, it would be more apt to be exercised, and for this very reason, it may in practice be found more effectual. It is to be hoped that it will not often happen that improper views will govern so large a proportion as two-thirds of both branches of the legislature at the same time, and this, too, in spite of the counterposing weight of the executive. It is, at any rate, far less probable that this should be the case than that such views should taint the resolutions and conduct of a bare majority. Part of what we see here, I think, is this mechanical language, the weight of the executive as a counter to the weight of the other branches. We often think of balance in metaphorical terms, but this seems like a balance in the sense of an old-fashioned scale, mass on one side, mass on the other. But this also takes up the substantive changes in legislation that might result from the veto, objections considered and approved or disapproved. And these objections might be anticipated in advance, which means that for Hamilton, the existence of the veto might have the function of shaping legislation in advance of its being presented to the executive. So I began this point with a reference to an older mechanical language of the workings of politics in the abstract. But there is reason to see Hamilton combining that older language with insights about the interaction of branches in anticipation of potential negotiating positions as an element of policy and lawmaking. Quoting Hamilton here, quote, A power of this nature in the executive will often have a silent and unperceived, though forcible, operation. When men, engaged in unjustifiable pursuits, are aware that obstructions may come from a quarter which they cannot control, they will often be restrained by the bare apprehension of opposition from doing what they would with eagerness rush into if no such external impediments were to be feared." End quote. We refer to stability in legislation as an element of Hamilton's argument. 
the interaction and mutual consideration of positions suggested by Hamilton's analysis of the veto suggests branches working together on legislation. This may be another mode of stability in lawmaking. Thank you for listening to the Rights and Liberties Podcast. For more about the Sunwater Institute, please visit our website at sunwater.org. Thank you.